So the Gathering Church was started in June 2009, and since that time, uh, we've been without a permanent home. And this morning I was counting, and we've, we've moved seven different times over the last nine years. We started at East Portland Community Center, then we went to Floyd Light Middle School, then we went to Ventura Park Elementary, then we went back to Floyd Light Middle School, then we came here to Ron Russell, then we went to Earl Boyles, then we came back here to Ron Russell. Seven times in nine years sounds like a military family. <laughs> but God has sustained us, and he's even made us into a healthy church. And now today is the last Sunday, Lord willing, that we will be without a home. This Sunday is our last Sunday in a school, and we will make one more move, our eighth move, in nine years. And we'll be heading to our newly renovated facility on 88th and Woodstock. Praise God. And many of you know how this came about, but just in, in, in very brief fashion, uh, I had been, become friends with Mitch Gibbs through CB Northwest a few years back, and last year between Christmas and New Year's, Mitch and I got together to talk about what would it look like if our two churches came together and formed one new church. And over the course of the spring, we had many congregational meetings, and we had joint elder meetings, and we sought counsel from outside brothers and sisters, and we sought counsel from the denomination, and at the end, it seemed it was what the Lord was doing. And so on July 1st, we became one new church. Amen. Now, if you would have told me, or several of us nine years ago, this is how, we would, this is how God would give us a permanent facility, I would at least be surprised. And many of you have said from, from Lentz that years ago, ten years ago, five years ago, maybe even, this probably wouldn't have been anticipated for what the next chapter of, of Lentz Baptist was going to be. And as I've told people throughout, you know, other, other Christians I know and around the city and so on, uh, they've had a similar reaction, this kind of delighted surprise, this kind of delighted surprise. Now we, this morning, continue our study through the gospel of Matthew, and as you remember, where we're at, we're in chapters 8 and 9, and, and what's unique about chapters 8 and 9 is that there are 10 different miracles that happen here. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He gave us his teaching. He gave us his law. He showed us what obedience is. And now in chapters 8 and 9, he's showing us his power. He's showing us that he is the Lord who saves, not just the Lord who teaches. In the text this morning, we're going to see three distinct groups of people. We're going to see the paralytic and his friends. We're going to see the scribes, who are the religious leaders. We're going to see the crowd. And for our context, I'm going to somewhat preach to us as if we are the crowd. So it's the paralytic, it's the scribes, it's the crowd. But what's striking is they don't have the kind of delighted surprise that we did when we learned about merging together as one new church. They have a kind of confused and astonished, and even for one group, they have an angry sort of surprise. So let's look at all three. We're just going to walk through the text as the text gives us the paralytic and his friends, the scribes, and then the crowds, and see what we can learn about Jesus, 
and see how it applies to our own lives. So the title of the sermon, for those that are listening and taking notes, is The Forgiveness of Sin. The Forgiveness of Sin. And the three points are the paralytic, the scribe, scribes, and the crowd. So I'm going to read it to us, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is God's word for us this morning. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this text this morning. We're grateful that the miracles of Jesus give us an insight into the heart of God. They give us an insight into the heart of the tender, loving care of Jesus. We ask that the scriptures would be illuminated. We pray for the preaching of your word to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. God, we ask for you to do great things among us that you can only do through your powerful and spoken word. We trust you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, the paralytic. Verse one says this to us. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, don't miss the first words of this passage where it says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea. Because these words point us back to the story that we didn't actually have time to look at last week at the end of chapter 8. And briefly, the Gadarenes had come to Jesus after the exorcism of the demon from the demoniacs, and they came to Jesus at the end of chapter 8, and they said, please leave. Depart our city. Depart our borders. Leave our region. And so Jesus did. It struck me that it's a frightening thing when the Lord Jesus departs from us. Jesus does not tarry very long where he is not welcome. And one of the sad things of the end of Matthew chapter 8 is that nowhere in the remainder of the Gospels are we ever told that Jesus went back to the region of Gadaria. It's a frightening thing to trifle with and to reject the Lord Jesus. And so, verse 2, or excuse me, the end of verse 1 tells us that he came to his own city. And we're told that this own city is in reference to Capernaum, not Nazareth or Bethlehem even, but the gospel writers will call Jesus' own city Capernaum. It's his, it's his launching place. It's his base of ministry. And he comes into Capernaum and he's brought a man that's lying on a bed who's paralyzed. 
And you know the scene is, is told much more dramatically in the Gospel of Mark. Mark's account is, is just much more colorful. One commentator put it like this. Mark's account makes the story jump. Matthew's account makes the story sharp. It's very true. Listen to how Mark describes the event. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. (laughs) What a dramatic scene. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus is preaching in a house, and these guys can't get in, so they climb up under the roof, they rip it off, and they lower their friend who's still on his bed into the middle of the crowd, so he's laying right before Jesus. The, the, the closest thing I could think of when I was trying to think of this this morning is a pinata at a kid's birthday party. Okay? It, it, the, the pinata at a kid's birthday party is like the ultimate gauntlet in self-control. Okay? Because there's, you, you allow these boys that are between the ages of 5 and 12 a large stick, you put a blindfold around their face, and you ask them to swing as hard as they can and break something open because it's full of candy. And the kids on the perimeter, they're like piranhas, like ready to just pounce at any moment. And the moment that thing breaks open, it's like this release of so much energy and lack of self-control that you've ever seen in your entire life. For a five-cent dum-dum. As I just gave that illustration, I don't really think it applies to... (laughs) made more sense in my head. (laughs) The point is that it's a dramatic scene. It's a dramatic scene. And imagine as hard it is to do now because this is not not uh, an organic type roof. This is a metal roof and and so on. But imagine the scene if, if, if someone was preaching and there were such great crowds that someone couldn't get close to Jesus who's preaching. And so they rip off the roof and they like literally lower someone down into the room. But that's not the most surprising thing about this text. What's surprising about this is what Jesus says to this man. Verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus simply walks over to the man and he speaks Words of gentle compassion when he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And this, of course, brings us to the first person who's surprised, confused even. Obviously, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but the irony is far too clear. The man can't walk. He hears Jesus is in town. His friends of great faith take him to the place where Jesus is. They go to great lengths of ripping off the roof and lowering this man who's still on his bed. And it doesn't take a literary scholar to know that this is not immediately what this man or his friends wanted. 
You can almost hear the paralytic saying or thinking to himself, uh, gee, thanks, Jesus, but I have a more immediate need. And that's exactly the point of this whole passage. No, you don't. No, you don't. He looks squarely at this man who from all worldly perspective has one clear problem. And that is he can't walk. And Jesus, in his tender-hearted way, looks at him and effectually says, that's not your biggest problem. If I'm going to look at you with compassion and tenderness, and I'm going to give you the very thing that you need, then the very thing that you need is for me to say, my son, your sins are forgiven. You realize the vast implications of what he's saying and what that means to us. He's saying that the biggest problem in your life isn't your suffering, it's your sin. He says... As important as the physical need is in your life, it's still not the primary need. It's still not the main need. As I was thinking and praying and preparing this sermon this week, this moment and this point, I've thought most about. In fact, I've thought about this idea and this point and prayed about it and sought counsel on this topic probably more than any other topic in the last year. Because I can hear someone say, how dare you say that? You don't know what I've been through. I've been abused. I've been severely mistreated. This is the point. The only way that someone can really destroy you or me is that if we become hardened to the point that we become a bitter and angry person. One pastor has said it like this. He said that bitterness is like eating rat poison and then watching and waiting for the rat to die. Jesus is saying to this paralytic and Jesus is saying to you, and me this morning, that the most important thing in your life is to experience the free grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that the most important thing in our life is to hear the tender voice of God saying through Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Because, because without that, without that kind of power, in your life, bitterness will completely destroy you. The only way to learn to forgive someone is to see, here's, the only way to learn to forgive to someone is to see that you are not better than anyone else. The only way to forgive is to experience the radical confrontation and the radical comfort of the gospel. See, because the gospel utterly levels the playing field. 
It says that you are so wicked. The things that are capable, your heart is capable of, apart from Christ, are damnable. And the Christian has to be willing to say and look at the most atrocious of people and say, I am somewhere capable of that in my own heart. It's just that the seeds of it were never watered. Whether through social circumstance or upbringing or, or whatever, or, 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 or the sovereign grace of God to, to prevent me from that, kept me from that. But I am capable, apart from the grace and the work of God, of the most atrocious of evils. but simultaneously experience the comfort of the gospel. That it brings us to the dust in its confrontation and it brings us soaring in the skies with its comfort. It says that you are far more loved, cherished, than you would ever dare hope. And that is the only path to true human flourishing. To embrace that your sins are forgiven. Our temptation, though, is to be like the paralytic. To say, if only I could walk, then my life would be right. But we've all been there. We've had what we perceive to be our greatest needs met. And then just give it some short order. Give it some time. And we are back into a place of despondency. I mean, I can imagine the scene even with the paralytic. I, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that, let's just say Jesus simply heals the paralytic and he could walk. Somewhere in the course of this man's life, he would not feel as fulfilled as he thought he would with his ability to walk. There would be something lacking still in the man. If he's setting his heart's affection, if he's setting the object of his hope, his security, satisfaction, and control on the ability to walk, then even the ability to walk will one day let him down. And the same is true for you. Whatever it is, whatever it is, if you think I had that one thing, job security, financial security, relational stability, a husband, a wife, freedom from debt, Relationship restored with a spouse, relationship restored with a sibling, relationship restored with a child. As good as those things are, I don't, I'm not preaching against those things at all. I'm preaching against setting your hope in those things. Because those things weren't ever designed to give you ultimate satisfaction. The only thing that your place and the only, the only place where your heart will find rest is in the sovereign love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's why when Jesus performs this miracle, that's where he goes. To tell this young man that his sins are forgiven. And that's the first point. People don't think, and we don't think, I don't think, in the moment, that our biggest problem is a theological or spiritual one. We think it's a physical one. Yesterday... I had this very odd experience where I got up in the morning, took a walk with my wife, and around 10.30, I have this, these flu-like symptoms that, that, that set on, and it was within hours, I was just, I, I couldn't get up for the rest of the day. So here I'm laying in bed thinking about a man who's paralyzed, 
And I'm laying in bed thinking, I have to get up tomorrow morning and preach to these people. And I just had this, this difficult yet satisfying afternoon of seeing that my biggest problem is not the fact that I'm, I'm laying here sick. I feel, most of the time I feel, I feel strong, I feel capable, but just one flu bug and I can't even move. I can't even get off the bed without, without feeling awful. But that's not my biggest problem. That's not my biggest problem yesterday. My biggest problem yesterday is not finding my strength, my hope, my identity, and Jesus Christ and his love for me. And hearing him say, not Matthew, you'll be healed for tomorrow morning, but hearing him say, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's the first point. The second point, the scribes. Why are they shocked? Look at what they say in verse 9-3. Actually, they don't say it, do they? Oh, they did say to them, I don't... Because mm. verse 4 says that Jesus knows their thoughts, and verse 3 says they said to themselves, so let's assume they didn't say it out loud. He said, this man is blaspheming. Now, why would he be blasphemed? Why would, why would they say that? Because... Because they, they, they see something that maybe the, the, the casual reader doesn't see initially, okay? Okay, imagine a scene where my, three of my children are here, or three of your children are here, okay? We've got Annalisa, Lathia, Benjamin, okay? And Annalisa, she would never do this. This is just an illustration, okay? Annalisa slugs her sister. And Benjamin comes around the corner and says, Annalisa, your sins are forgiven, Alethea would be left standing there going, uh, well, thanks, Benjamin, but I don't think the transgression was against you. But that's the point. That's the point. For Jesus to say to this, this, this man, your sins are forgiven, means that the offense was against him. And that's what the scribes perceive him to be saying. For someone to say your sins are forgiven There's only one person that can say that, and that is the creator and sustainer of all things, the true and living God. So when Jesus has the audacity to look at this man and say, your sins are forgiven, he's saying all the sins that you've committed in your life, we've never met. I know that you just showed up here a few minutes ago, but everything that you ever did, all the evil intentions of your heart were only against me. Because that's the nature of sin. The nature of sin is that sin is first and foremost a sin against a holy and living God. And these scribes have the insight to perceive that. Do you see what they see? They see who this sin is ultimately against. But that's not all. Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. Look at what he does. Verses 5 and 6. He says, For which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So let me put the question to you. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? It might seem like a fairly easy question at first. Now, I don't mean to 
demean biblical scholars and commentators and so on. But there's a lot of, surprisingly, a lot of ink spilled on this question. Is it rhetorical? What's he actually saying? Which actually, which actually is easier? Is, it harder to, is, is he actually saying, is it harder to say one set of words than it is to say another set of words? Or, or is it easier to, for, to forgive a transgression? Or is it easier to have authority over the created order itself and, and, and have someone rise and walk? I think the solution is, is fairly simple for us. And I think the solution is simply found in the word say. It's found in the word say. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say rise and walk? Now, here's the reason for that. Because God's word are God's actions. God's words are God's actions. Let me illustrate. In the beginning, when God says, let there be light, he doesn't say, let there be light, and then, and then him and the Trinity go, okay, now let's go make light. No, his, his words are creative in their power. His words create realities. God's words are God's actions. God builds faith through the preaching of his word, the scriptures. God sets the universe in order by his words. God sustains the universe by his words. His words aren't just a suggestion or a thought process and then he goes and does it. His words are his actions. So which is easier to say? Rise up and walk or your sins are forgiven. There's a place... There's a place uh, where Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he qualifies this statement significantly, okay, because he doesn't want to be found to be a heretic, okay. But he says, there was only one problem that God ever faced. Now, the qualification is a sovereign, omnipotent God doesn't face problems, okay. But for the sake of of, of literary understanding, Lloyd-Jones says there was only one problem that God ever faced, And that was the forgiveness of sins. Because. For God to say, let there be light, there's light. For God to say, rise up and walk, he rises up and walks. But for the Lord Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, means that he's marching to a Roman cross where he will experience an excruciating, brutal death. Because God is a holy God. He's a just God. It's the, it's the riddle that Justin read for us this morning from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. For God to say, for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, is him setting his mind to the cross. So it is far easier to say, rise up and walk. For him to cause the paralytic to rise up and walk is just him drawing on his omnipotent power. For him to say, your sins are forgiven, means that he has set his face to the cross where he will experience the wrath of God upon himself.
For that's the only way to forgive your sins. The only way to forgive your sins and my sins is for the Lord Jesus Christ to die as a substitute in your place and on your behalf. And that's a decision. And that is the heart behind Jesus saying, which is easier? Which leads us to our third point, the crowds. Now for the last point, there's a, there's a bit of surprise. I said I was going to preach it to us from some degree that we are the crowds. Though I think each of these has an application to us. We will notice something about this text that should surprise us if we know something about systematic theology or the doctrine of conversion specifically. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew starts out his gospel like this. First John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first thing we hear John the Baptist say. First thing we hear Jesus say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do we notice, though, about Jesus in this text, in Matthew chapter 9? Jesus offers forgiveness here without repentance. And commentators will suggest to us that this is the only place that this happens. That everywhere else, repentance is, is always before forgiveness. So I don't, I don't think that Jesus or, or Mark or Matthew are somehow trying to rewrite systematic theology as we know it and somehow contradict the other places, the clear places of Scripture. I think there's something else that's, that, that's fairly, fairly easy to see in the text. And that's in verse 4 for us. Verse 4, speaking of the scribes, says, But Jesus knowing their thoughts. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Now I realize that he's talking about knowing the thoughts of the scribes, but is it giving us something more? If he knows the thoughts of the scribes, surely all the thoughts are known. It must mean this, and this is the point for you and me. It must mean that in this man's heart there was some kind of longing, some articulate, inarticulate yearning, some kind of ache, some kind of thirst in his heart for grace and forgiveness. What does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is the hound of heaven. That he is so eager to give to us his grace. He's just eager to do it. Remember two weeks ago when we looked at the centurion whose servant was healed. And the centurion comes to Jesus and explains the situation to him. And and Jesus says, let's go. And the centurion says, whoa, 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 whoa. You could just say the word. You don't have to come with me all the way home. But that same idea is here. He's eager to give us his grace. And what that means for us is that there is a man that we can fully and completely trust. It means for us that there is a man who's eager to save. He's eager to shower his mercy. He's eager to give us his grace. You see what that means for us when we seek to forgive those around us who've wronged us. Jesus tells us that we are to take up our cross and follow him. And that to follow him, it means that we ought and, and, and necessarily must deny ourselves. But the shape and the nature of trauma and abuse 
is that it, it changes our view of reality. Some psychologists have said it's almost as if reality is frozen in time. That people can't be trusted. Authority is bad. Love is hard to come by. Always cover your back. And this is the great challenge of Christianity. It says that we need someone that can be ultimately trusted. And here he is. The man Jesus Christ. If you've been wronged or hurt or abused, there truly is one man who you can trust, who is eager to shower his grace upon you. The tenderness of this man in coming up to this paralytic and calling him my son. The sweet, tender care of a savior. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8, just a couple weeks ago, going up and touching the leper. We know he didn't need to do that because he healed the centurion's servant with just a word when he was whoever, however far away he was from him. He didn't need to go up to the leper to touch him, but he does. Because he's a man with tender mercy and grace, eager to shower it upon us. When he comes to Lazarus' tomb, and Mary comes running out to him saying, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. He weeps. He's a tender man, eager to shower his mercy and grace. When the little girl is lying dead in Mark's gospel, and Jesus goes in with her mom and dad, and he walks up to her and he says in Aramaic, Talitha kum. That word there, we translate it, uh, get up little girl, something like that. But the Greek and the Aramaic are far more tender. It's, it's, it's a term of endearment to a, to a young child. It's like sweetheart. It's like little precious one. And he, he speaks through death and he speaks with words of tenderness and care and compassion and he brings life to this little girl because that's the kind of man that's the kind of savior that he is he's one that can be trusted weak and wounded, sick and sore Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity love and power come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. What a wonderful Savior. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful that you've come to us in the man Jesus Christ, a man who can be trusted. We pray that you would help us now, Father. Help us to trust you more and gender faith where there's unbelief. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.